Hello, I'm Nick Baker, and this is the UK Wildlife Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips. And I'm Victoria Hillman. And we're joined for a... It's a good start, isn't it? I always screw up the start. And we're joined by a very special guest today. Kate McRae. Hello, Kate. Hello. So I think we'll kick off with our wildlife sightings and then we'll kind of get chatting to Kate. So as our guest, Kate, we can, we're going to let you kick off with any wildlife you've seen recently. Well, we're getting quite excited. I, I teach in a very large Nuneaton uh, junior school and we're really upping the game with bird feeding this year. So the children are very excited today because um, there's lots of goldfinches around we have a buzzard or we have a couple of buzzards and we have managed to lure it down with the meaty remnants of school dinners in the past. So um, we're, we're going to start that up again. And a few weeks ago, we actually saw a red kite in the area. So we're really excited because they're obviously a bird that you can, you know, bring a bit closer possibly. So, um, so yeah, the birds of prey really excite the kids because they're, they're really not, very much aware of of them and they think a buzzard is really like they they've never heard of a buzzard many of them but they know what an eagle is so I always say it's a little bit like a small eagle and that that really hypes them up (laughs) yeah so I'll have to go with that one (laughs) (laughs) so those those are our best views this um this week really um at home surprisingly quiet my bird feeders are very quiet at the moment um so I'm, I'm sort of I am actually getting a bit worried because I don't think I've ever had it this quiet on my feeders at the end of November, beginning of December. I'm just presuming there's so much natural food around still. There's a lot of berries here and a lot of natural seed heads still around in the fields. So I'm, I'm hoping it's and it's also been quite mild. So I'm hoping that's the reason that my numbers are, are really quite down at the moment. Yeah, I've noticed my, my garden feeders are a bit quiet as well. So I think it's the mild weather. That's my theory anyway. Yeah, I think so. It could, it could be, especially if there's still a lot of natural food out there for them. Mm. Mm. You know, which is, which is great if that's what they're going for. Yeah, and I have a very domineering robin in the garden at the moment because they're sort of establishing territories now. They can become really possessive over a set of feeders. And I have actually had to move a set just because he won't let anybody on there. <laughs> actually attacks birds who go on the feeders so I've moved them around a bit in the hope that it'll settle down a bit and I'll get a few more visitors. <laughs> well, so I think it's actually supposed to be starting to turn a bit colder anyway isn't it? I know we've actually had a few frosts anyway here. Yeah we've only had one or two though. Um, yeah. But I think it is supposed to turn colder later on this week if you believe the weather forecast. <laughs> Have you spotted anything at all Vic in your garden or anywhere? Well we've got a grey squirrel that, that visits not doesn't actually visit our garden kind of passes through but then sits on the fence looking all chubby and cute and got a very very white belly um he, he, he's actually very, really quite cute uh, comes through the garden normally once a day while i'm having my breakfast our house we are <laughs> how should we call them our uh, our flock of house sparrows <laughs> that need an asbo are still hanging around our low-flying flock that kind of come from the hedge on one side of us and go to the bird feeders a couple of doors down from us uh, and, and they don't take any prisoners if you were standing in the garden you would have to duck and get out of their way 
<laughs> they, they literally just fly through and it's just like we're coming regardless and other than that not really i've not really been out that much since we last recorded our buzzard mimicking starling is back i've heard him if him or her a few times and the tawny owls are still calling that's about it really how about you neil i had a trip out i hadn't been out for a while so i thought right i'm gonna go and have a walk there's lots of things there's a shorted owl site near not too far from me there's some cool well say cool some rare looking buntings down in furs i think it is and there's a crag martin in kent and i thought do you know what i want to go somewhere where i won't be bothered by too many other people so i went to wallacey island which has been mentioned a few times or at least once <laughs> on this podcast it's a site where the rtb took the spoil from Crossrail in london the big railway project and used it to landscape a big area and they've re-wetted a load of arable fields and they've basically created loads of freshwater, saltwater, brackish lagoons and it's massive. So I decided to visit. The forecast was sort of cloudy, maybe getting sunny in the afternoon. It was really misty and foggy when I got there and I went for a bit of a walk around. I had a map on my phone and I walked along one bit and went down another path and it was shut. I thought, oh, I walked back and thought, is that it? So I went back on myself, uh, walking around, and I realised that I wasn't at the far southern end of the reserve. I was actually only a third of the way into it. <laughs> uh, what I thought was the was the tidal creek was just one of the lagoons. It's so foggy I couldn't see in my defence. <laughs> Kept walking, and I think I walked 20 kilometres, and I only walked one path twice. <laughs> so it's absolutely huge, the place. And wildlife-wise, lots of kestrels flying around. No shorted owls or hen harriers, which you can be seen there. Loads of marsh harriers, waders and ducks and cormorants and all that sort of stink galore. Brent geese. When I, when it was still foggy, I kept hearing this sort of weird sort of flapping noise, which is quite obvious now when I think back. But, you know, a bit like, you know, when a sailboat goes past, you hear that flapping. And I look up and I, I, just, I couldn't see anything because it was too misty. But as it started to clear, it was flocks of a few hundred golden plover whizzing round. Oh, wow. Um, and a bit later on, when the sun was out, I saw probably about a thousand of them flying around, which was wonderful to see. And I had one last walk in the afternoon round the bit that looked like the most likely to have something like a shorted owl or a harrier flying around. And I saw a marsh harrier there. No shorted owls, but just as I was giving up, a load of swans flew over, you know, in the golden hour, the last hour of sunlight. looked absolutely wonderful. And I got a couple of nice shots in flight. But a kestrel was sat on one of the screens. Another kestrel came in, scared it off then flew back onto a post which I could only get silhouette shots of and as I walked back it actually flew past me over my head and flew down and landed on the path in front of me <laughs> on a post um, so I had to sneak up I had to use all 1200 mil because it's still quite skittish but you can imagine what the light was like you know sunny day very slight mist beautiful orange light and I've got a couple of nice pictures if you go on UK wildlife twitter and facebook whatever you're um you can see the picture it's really really quite pleased with that although it was really orange the light level was quite low so i had to push the anti-shake on the camera to maximum but yeah it came out i was quite pleased with that and just just a really lovely walk around so up to that point i hadn't really got anything you know if you're being really strict on really nice pictures i could have gone somewhere and got some really nice pictures i guess but it was such a lovely walk around but my legs were killing me by the end of it you can probably imagine after all that walking having not done much in this lockdown and whatever period but i've got my week's exercise in one day <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a good day and well worth it though yeah it's definitely worth checking out if you're in essex wallacey beautiful so they ought to be done themselves a seriously good bit of credit there in my book 
cracking job they've done. And I should be visiting RSV Old Hall Marshes tomorrow to help them out with a survey. So that should be good. Excellent. So on to chatting with Kate now. And we're going to chat all kinds of different things. So before we get down to chatting about stuff like camera traps and education and fun wildlife challenges, Kate, do you want to kind of introduce yourself and tell everyone a little bit about you just in case they don't know who you are because they've had their head in the sand for (laughs) several years? (laughs) Yeah, I'm Kate McRae, but I'm most commonly known as Wildlife Kate now, including at school, and most people now just call me Wildlife Kate, <laughs> which is quite funny actually when you meet people out and they go, Oh, hi, Wildlife Kate. <laughs> but um, yeah, so my background is um, I've been a teacher for over 30 years, primary education mainly, and um, I now teach two days a week, but then I do a range of other wildlife based projects both here and my garden at um, home in Litchfield and I also manage a big site in um, Worcester for wildlife so I'm a bit of a IT um, gadget freak so I do lots of camera based work I love setting up cameras entirely um, self-taught and yeah so I do all sorts of wildlife based projects and still teach two days a week as well busy busy then <laughs> I'm very very busy I don't know at the moment where the weeks go because a lot of my work obviously my teaching still carried on I still manage the site in Worcester because it's all outside I've lost a lot of my guiding and um, other work like that but actually the interest in connecting with the wildlife right in your garden has never been bigger no no and it's something that we've kind of covered a few times actually this year on the podcast it, you know that people have definitely connected more with their local wildlife and nature which can only be a good thing hopefully absolutely yeah and I think out of all the negative things that have come out of this Covid period one of the positives has been the amount of time that people have had to spend in their local either garden or green spaces and many people who literally had not done that before yeah I'm hoping that will have knock-on effects in the future but yeah I do I do just about Oh, I do so many different things. When people say, well, what do you do? It's it's always really hard because it changes all the time as well because I go off on tangents on crazy projects and I'm very imaginative, very creative. So, yeah, I do I do lots and lots of different things, but all amazing wildlife-based. And that's what I really love and I'm passionate about, particularly the education side, if I'm honest. That's what really fires me. Should we start with kind of the education side of it and then we can move on to other things? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I teach two days a week now. Um, I mean, my, my background is that I did a, a primary teaching degree many, many years ago now, but with environmental education as my main. And then, you know, started teaching in the primary sector. I was literally spent time outside with kids right from the beginning, because that was what just what felt right and what I was where I was comfortable because I've always been crazy about natural history and being outside and then I became the science manager within the school and over I don't know how many years probably a decade um, I sort of worked my way up within primary education and got to the point where the, you either then become a deputy or a head and those are, are the only options really um, so 
I, I carried on within education for a while. I never really wanted to be a deputy or head because it took me away from the classroom in a way that I didn't want to. So I sort of went into a bit of consultancy. I'd always done a lot of creative stuff and taking on other external work and, and starting to teach part time. And then I don't know how many years ago now, it's scary how much time passes. But about eight years ago, I think I got the current job and I actually went into the school as a consultant to help them develop their school grounds because that's what I love doing you know maximizing the chances of of teachers being able to use outdoor spaces that are there to extend learning and I drew up a massive plan and the current head was like wow this looks great but I can't see it happening unless we have someone like you in school to make sure it happens (laughs) at which point I was like well if you can offer me a full-time post I was actually the IT manager at my previous school at that point so cut a long story short they undenied I did a presentation to the governors and they took me on but I'm very privileged because I, I go in as an experienced primary school teacher but without a class commitment but it's a it we've got 600 pupils at Michael Drayton Junior School and I basically in two days a week have I I manage all the school grounds, so we've developed a range of outdoor learning spaces. I help the teachers and staff learn, you know, and and feel confident to take children outside. We've also got a place called Hartsill Hayes, literally on the doorstep of the school. So you can see this large woodland area from the gates. And when I joined the school, nobody ever went in there. So there's this huge, wonderful woodland resource two minute walk from the school and nobody went there um so they do now <laughs> and 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 I basically work with a range of children I work very strongly with the pastoral care team we've got a very big pastoral care team at our school with um lots of lots of children with additional needs so I do a lot of my work with them and and try and spread myself as far as I can in two days around a very 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 large school <laughs> <laughs> but I absolutely love it and 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 I can see in the time I've been there how how it's transformed and that is very 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 rewarding and that's what keeps me there to be honest it's if you're a teacher you you do it because of that love of sharing your enthusiasm with children and yeah it's a tough job and at the moment even tougher <laughs> but but, you know, those moments like today, I was with two lads who'd had a really bad weekend, came into school in not a good place, took them out into our wild learning area with binoculars. We filled the bird feeders. We, we've got a little bird hide. We sat in there and they've never held a pair of binoculars and they didn't really know anything about birds. And seeing a blue tick come onto a feeder and one of them went, I actually saw that in real life. that's brilliant it just made me smile you know an hour ago he was in meltdown and now he was enthusing about seeing a blue tit on a bird feeder and that's what it's all about that's what keeps me there (laughs) and it's weird isn't it because that's something that a lot of people would actually completely take for granted but that something so small could mean so much to to someone else absolutely and 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 I think what I what I noticed as well you know there's kids who've never worn a pair of wellies now to me that is I just can't imagine how you could get to age 10 or 11 and have never put a pair of wellies on (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah. when when I first started I did a big I did a big appeal at school and said if you've got any old wellies your kids are grown out of and I've basically got a wellie store now so that because obviously children come to me they they invariably don't have suitable clothing for me to take them outside so I have I have spare clothing 
and when I first started with the welly store they certainly the year six and year six boys they were like I'm not putting those on I was like well fine but when we're down the woods and we all go in the stream and splashing puddles you're gonna have to stay on the path that's fine and some of them like held out for the first time and then saw all the fun we were having and the next time they were straight in that welly store (laughs) (laughs) and I literally that's what I look like all the time so I'm modeling that and and with kids everything's about modeling you know where often you take a group out with a teacher who maybe hasn't been out before and they're, they're quite apprehensive if you're not comfortable in the in the outdoor environment yourself as an individual it's very hard to then take 30 children there and I have to remember that because my natural environment is outside I'm not frightened about being in the woods or what might happen or I, I just forget how much that's a natural to me and when you take somebody out a member of staff who that isn't their natural place and they feel nervous about being out there they're not going to be able to take their class out or be confident so that's when my role is so important to show them that actually their children aren't more out of control out there because they really want to be there they don't want to be sent back (laughs) yeah and 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 if you're not careful there's a lot of don't touch that don't climb there no don't don't do this and it's constantly don't do that and and children always the first thing they say when we find anything exciting is can I touch it and in, invariably I say you can touch whatever you like as long as you wash your hands afterwards um and there's nothing we're going to find in those woods that's going to be dangerous I mean okay dog feces you're not going to want to pick that up but I'd find any any childhood would want to do that but, <laughs> you know it's getting over those general everyday fears um for staff initially before we even take the kids outside Um, but they they so love it and people say kids aren't interested anymore that's absolute rubbish I've been teaching for 30 years and children are no less interested in the natural world now than I've ever seen you know it's just that they often haven't had the chance and that's the frightening thing when you take kids out who are 10 11 and they've never seen frog spawn Mm. and they're like can I touch it now me and you guys will know exactly what I mean what frog spawn feels like when it runs through your fingers yeah (laughs) (laughs) and probably many of the people listening to this podcast will be the same because they've all experienced in it and it's those multi-sensory experiences that are so important for kids so I'm very touchy-feely I pick up everything you know slugs bugs everything and if you model that they'll do it you know I've got groups who come out with me initially they won't even touch dirt you know they literally won't get their hands dirty let alone pick up a worm or a woodlouse or anything and um a couple of sessions with me and their (laughs) (laughs) going home to their parents look what i found today like bring a change of clothes um because invariably they don't go back looking like they did when they left No, when I whenever I do, because I, I'm slightly different to you, because generally my groups are, they come visit the reserve for the you know the day, mm. but I'm very much of the mini beast hunt, so you know the invertebrates. Yeah. To if they if they want to hold a worm or a spider or a or whatever, I, I fully encourage it. A few months ago, someone put a picture up of their child holding a. It wasn't even something with porous skin. It was one. It was a spider or a shield bug, and someone went ape saying, "Oh, you're going to kill the." insect it's like what <laughs> well what are you on about maybe a frog if i've got a class of 30 children doing a pond dip 
yeah. I don't let them hold a newt because by the 30th one, the yeah. poor thing's going to yeah. have no moisture yeah. there. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, where, where it's not going to harm the animal, I don't see why. I mean, I have to admit, frog spawn, it, I keep reading conflicting things. If you, Some people say if you touch it, you can give it a fungus. I don't think that's true. But I, I tend to let them put their hand right under in the water. Yeah, yeah. as long as it stays under the water, I think you're right, aren't you? Underneath. Yeah. And just so that they can feel that jelliness, not like yeah. you're out the water and all past oh, yeah. it. You know, that's but probably what I'm about, yeah. You know, just feeling what that, and and that's what they'll remember. They need to, yeah. you know, they need to see it, they need to touch it, smell it. It needs to be a whole sensory. And and to me, until children have that kind of connection, they're not going to understand or be interested or want to care about the natural world. If you don't let them do that, you might as well just sit in the classroom and look at it in a book. <laughs> exactly. You're going to always end up with some casualties. Not every time but over time you end up with some casualties in a mini beast hunt or a, a pond dip but the way i look at it in the broad picture you know you might lose a couple of mayfly nymphs or you know a couple of woodlice might get slightly squished by mistake or whatever but if you've then inf- infused 30 children who then go on to have a much you know a much better understanding of the natural world in the long run that's a, a net gain isn't it it's yeah it is and it's all about teaching them as well how to handle things properly and how to yeah, return them yeah. to their natural environment and you know, there's so much learning that is is, ava- is possible at literally every stage from the minute you step out of that door. And, and that's what I, I really want to do. You know, and, and it's you speak to anybody at school, you know, the, the difference it's made in, in our school and in terms of, of the interest of the children. And also I take my dog as well. So mm. Ren is our school dog. And oh, she has absolutely amazed me and her power of of what a difference having animals in school can make so not only do we have my dog we have another member of staff brings her dog at different times as well for like reading with children and all sorts of things just having an animal there can calm a situation and then we keep hens and we've got quail and we've got rabbits and a guinea pig so (laughs) all of those animals are all cared for by the children and they're used as well as a way of, um, you know, interacting with children who maybe find it difficult to communicate or who have had a bad time. And, you know, and, and Ren is like a magnet to any upset child. She literally hones in on anybody who may be a bit upset and she's straight in their tail wagging. And or even those who are really in a bad place, you know, very angry or um, upset. And she can just calm a situation. <laughs> it's phenomenal, really. Uh, that's what they say. Dogs are too good for us. <laughs> it's very I think, true. I think the other thing as well, like, you know, if you, you can really enthuse the children, it's amazing the impact that can then potentially have on their parents. Yeah. Mm. Well, exactly. You know, I've had so many lovely comments of um, parents coming back and saying, you know, they, they want a bird feeder to go at home or like at the moment I'm doing, I do like a little um, bird ID challenge. So the boys I'm working with at the moment, I give them pictures. They've got six birds to learn this week. And then if they can learn them over the week, they're all ones we're going to literally see as we walk around the school grounds. Then they earn themselves a badge and then I start adding other species on. And before you know it, they can ID 30, 40 species of bird. And the thing is, they don't forget that. If you teach them it now, I've had kids come back who I did it with when I first joined school eight years ago. And they come back and they say, I can still remember all those birds from the bird ID challenge. <laughs> oh, brilliant. I did the classic thing of being really interested as a kid. 
I was still interested all through senior school, but you don't, you know, you don't act on it so much. Um, and then when I was at uni, I, I was doing paleontology, so I did, I did bits of biology, but I didn't go out the amount I did since sort of 2006 onwards. And so I'm just getting back into the wildlife and I'm finding insects or I'm seeing birds and my brain, something deep in my brain is telling me what they're called, but I don't know for sure if that's what it is. And it's where I read a book on wildlife when I was like eight and it went in. <laughs> stored somewhere in my brain and now I'm walking around and I'm finding you know I can't, I can't think of an example now but like I'd find a an anemone on the beach and I go hmm, I think that's a beetle anemone because it's the pink one and you know and it's quite scary that all this stuff you I never saw one in real life before I was an adult and now I'm finding them yeah but, their brains are just so geared up hmm. for learning um and and just they're just like little sponges and because i i love it so much and i'm so enthusiastic it's very well i think it's pretty easy to get kids enthused at that age you know they're they're it's a set they're seven to eleven year olds and they just they're just geared up for learning um and it's just about hitting the right buttons and turning the right firing mechanisms on and then they're off one thing i found i remember having a group of brownies and it must have been something like 2012 2013 something like that and i mentioned david attenborough and they all looked blank at me and it turned out they're all big fans of the only way is essex you know far too young to be watching that but it's not going to that and i was a bit disappointed but you ask any group now they all know who he is yeah it's been a massive shift mm in things and in america as well because no one knew who he was in america because they always used to think it was morgan freeman or someone used to do all the narration to all the bbc dot and they used to dub him over instead but and i think that's had a positive effect as well the kids seem to be more aware i mean there's a another pattern i found which always surprised me now they did have an enthusiastic teacher but the most knowledgeable group we used to have class every year because you have the same teachers come back would be one from inner city London. And then I talked to kids where they were in a more rural town or village. And, oh, fox, oh, that's a pest. They didn't know anything about it. They knew it killed chickens for fun, all that sort of rubbish. But they didn't actually know any actual facts about them or the real scientific stuff about them, put it that way. Have you noticed any patterns like that at all or and most of my work I must admit tends to be in the set school that I'm teaching mm, of course it is yes yeah, sorry I do do consultancy work outside so I'll go and do sessions in school but invariably the kinds of schools that tend to call me in are those who've already got a a sort of budding interest in and and yeah. I must admit it tends to always be driven by one or two highly enthusiastic members of yes staff. yeah and that that is what drives it and that I think the struggle with me is you know I won't do this forever and it's trying to build something within Michael Drayton that's sustainable when I'm not there mm. so it, it it's in it's it's embedding it within to the within the curriculum and providing all the facilities so that if I wasn't part of the scenario, it would still go on. And and obviously, you know, a lot of things like this are driven by, you know, someone who's passionate about it. And and and, and I in my opinion, every school should have someone like me who's who's paid to do that and not have a class commitment. And a lot of schools now are tapping into sort of forest schools or paying to have external um, organisations like the Wildlife Trust or RSPB coming in to do sessions. But having that embedded into the curriculum is is the way forward. And I'm hoping we're heading that way with the talks of GCSE, natural history. I'm hoping that if, if that all happens, it's, it's got to be the, what makes sense is to have that starting from the beginning. 
you know, the GCSE is the culmination <laughs> of exactly. years of doing a similar thing, not just starting when you're, you know, teenage. And and a lot goes on in primary schools. It really does. But the thing that holds it up is that primary school teachers are, you know, literally overrun with curriculum based stuff. And it is hard if you're not that way inclined to see the opportunities of how you can do your everyday teaching, but outside of the classroom. You know, I'm not a lot of people think outdoor learning is doing your science, you know, looking at flowers, looking at leaves, looking at birds. But it isn't. It's it's about taking any lesson. So your numeracy, your literacy, your science, anything and taking it away from sitting at a desk and doing it somewhere else. (laughs) It could be just on the playground. It could be in the field. It could be in the woods. You know, I've had groups writing poetry about spring and they were sat in the classroom and just down the road the bluebells are flowering in Hartsill Hayes <laughs> and I'm yeah. like why are you sitting here go and sit in the woods you'll get way better language and, and imagination and poetry and adjectives and everything sit them in the woods in those bluebells you know don't sit in the classroom and people are like oh well, I don't really know anything about bluebells or I don't really you know are they all going to run everywhere and it's like right so I will I will go down with a class I'll model it and what usually once I've done it with a class the teacher's like oh <laughs> actually that was really lovely yeah <laughs> I that. and then they're likely to do it again you know and there's so many things I did one of my most popular activities they do um I think it was stone age people one of the um history ones and we did foraging so because the kids had to learn about how they obviously found food and, and, and they would have been foraging in the woods and all sorts. So before the session, I go out with Rice Krispies and Shreddies into the woods and I spread the Rice Krispies and Shreddies around <laughs> an area. And then they all have little pots and then they go foraging and the Rice Krispies are worth one health point. They're like finding a berry. And the shreddies are worth two health points and they're like maybe finding a good root or um, something a bit of a, a bigger sort of fruit. And they sort of to represent those. And they have to literally spend half an hour foraging in the woods and, and collecting all these shreddies and rice krispies. And, I, you know, I know any that aren't going fi- to be found aren't going to cause any major trouble to um, hearts or haste. But, oh, my goodness, they love it. And, and it's, it's a bit of competition between them as well. Oh, my goodness, oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Yes. You know, but, you know, they really have to look and the excitement and then me saying, you know, you've done half an hour of that. Right. Look how much you foraged. That's your meal for now. When you want to eat again later, you're going to have to go and do that again. (laughs) And that sort of understanding of what life might have been like when you don't just nip down to Morrison's and, and grab your lunch or, you know, be able to go to a supermarket and it's such a valuable lesson because suddenly that actually meant something those children had had a go you know so so we it's really about being creative and looking for opportunities to take the learning outside whatever that learning is and I would challenge anyone to come up with a topic that I couldn't somehow (laughs) deliver outdoors because I usually can (laughs) The challenge is on. Yeah. <laughs> topic and I'll think of a way I can do it in Hearts Always <laughs> or in the school grounds. <laughs> oh, I'm uh, I'm resisting the urge to make a joke along the lines of you're teaching them to survive post Brexit, but <laughs> 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 Yes. Moving swiftly on from that subject. So I think we could probably talk all day about 
educating children certainly of us two here (laughs) well let's talk about trail cameras shall we and and rigging up your entire garden and the oh it's gone from my head the reserve you work out what's it called kate that's the one view view with the most watched areas of the country (laughs) outside you know oh no mi5 (laughs) yeah yeah i have got a bit obsessed with in fact i can't imagine not having cameras now like like I'm sitting here at my desk and I can see the cameras in my garden for example so I live stream cameras and like for example now I'm watching and I've got a fox feeding at the feeding station so that camera live streams on my website so people can log in as soon as it's dark I put a small amount of dog food out uh dried dog biscuits out each night and I've got a family of foxes all come well it's guaranteed virtually as guaranteed as you can be with wildlife but they come every night as soon as it's dark they'll come have a little bit of a snack and then go off hunting so people can watch those so I have I have probably generally here about 10 cameras it depends on what time of the year more in spring because I have them in nest boxes and then at UView UView is a private garden actually although it looks like a nature reserve it is actually a private garden um so that's well the main site's seven acres and they've just bought a little bit extra now so we've got about another acre so probably eight eight and a half acres in the Worcestershire countryside and we've got over 30 cameras installed (laughs) so everything from the standard like bird feeders to nest boxes I've built a badger set so I've got cameras underground in a and wild badgers using the badger set I've got a tawny box one that she's nested in three years running I've actually got three cameras in the one box and we're very excited because they they're just having fiber BT are installing fiber broadband so I'm going to be able to live stream Mm. (laughs) so I'll be able to share hopefully some of these cameras on my website and that's that's wonderful because it amazes me how many people watch my live cameras I've had emails from all over the world people who just log on and have a look at what I'm doing either in my garden or at UVU. So these cameras are all CCTV-based sort of cameras. They wire back to a central computer, either here in my office or at the office in UVU. And then I use a piece of software called iCatcher Console, which is actually CCTV software modified by the company to sort of uh, wildlife. And it basically monitors all my cameras 24-7 and records 24-7. So at any point, I can choose a camera, click on replay, and it will play back everything that's happened that day. And I can go and lift sections of footage, which is what I spend most of my time that I'm not actually in school or physically at work. So all my evenings, as soon as I get in from work, I literally have something to eat. And then I come straight up onto the computer. I look through all the day's footage. I pick off stuff. I blog about it. I save things. And it's sort of just become a way way of life, (laughs) sadly, because I do spend a lot of time looking through footage. But all of those cameras are wired. So um, that is one part of camera work I do. And then, like you said, the other ones are trail cameras. So trail cameras are different. They're running on batteries and they're completely remote. So I can put those anywhere. They trigger on movement and then will record to an SD card. And then I can lift that SD card and, again, look through all the footage and pick out the bits that interest me. So I can put those anywhere so they can go a bit further afield, but the other cameras are limited to how far I can physically cable them. <laughs> and, and if uh, if you have any of the same problems that I have with the trail cameras I set up at my parents' house, you take the memory card and you think, oh, you know, there's like 400 video clips oh, on no. here. <laughs> 390 of them are cats. <laughs> mm. 
then or, another eight of them are a magpie sitting in front of the camera looking at it or a pigeon yeah and then but you might have one good one though yeah i mean we've got a good badger and fox videos got some great fox videos of them playing and that in the garden at, you know in the dead of night um one with an, an owl, a tawny owl sat on a tree behind just looking at them and oh, you just wow. you know see it's there in one clip because you see the eyes yeah. and, and then it's just gone <laughs> but yeah you do have to trawl through the 390 yeah. odd yeah and you, you sort of get better i tend to use them as well um often sort of sussing out where i might then put a wired camera so i'll, I'll use them to recce an area really to get a feel of what's happening in that area and, and, and the potential for a more permanent setup. Um, and it varies, you know, sometimes I go through phases where I do a lot of trail cam work and then other times it sort of dies down. Like at the moment, I've, I've got a couple out on like sets and things like that. And, and, and I always have them out at UView somewhere. I've just got some really nice stuff on a new track that appeared and turned out it was fox, badger, muntjac. We had Red Wing, Field Fairs, all sorts. Like in one week, I literally had probably about 120 clips and about 80 of those were actually really nice, <laughs> which is pretty rare. But, you yeah. know, they're, they're such versatile bits of kit. And great, again, in school. We use trail cams in school. It's so cool. We found out we had badgers visiting our school grounds, which we didn't even know. And the excitement when those, those kids lifted that SD card and we got a badger my goodness it's kind of like like fun anticipation with the trail cams as well isn't there that you you genuinely don't unless you're i mean i i have two and they're they're set up at my well actually they're not set up anywhere because they're sat in my office downstairs one of them's waiting to be cleaned because it got water inside it somehow i have no idea how but they will eventually go back out with my parents you know i I know roughly what i'm going to pick up there but there's like kind of that anticipation it's like are we gonna are we gonna see the foxes are the foxes still hanging around are they still coming back and you know what about the badgers we actually named one of the badgers big bum because he's huge he's enormous (laughs) and all you ever saw was this big bum just trotting off down in front of the camera or i think there's one where he did actually decide to use it as a scratching post Uh, um they do get yeah. very interested in them a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we actually use them. Creative. You can get creative with them. And I do quite a lot of where I've, I've almost, you know, you've got a feeding station or you're setting it up to capture. Often I'll, certainly with my wired cameras as well, I'll have like an image in my mind of what I want to achieve, almost like, you know, you would within your photography. So I'm sort of setting the trail cam up to get the right light and the right background in orders particularly on things like I did quite I did I spent a lot of months um, at UV trying to get the kingfishers on the trail cameras and it took me months to get like really really cracking stuff and people go how do you get all you know really amazing trail all your trail cam footage is amazing how do you do it and I'm like because you only see about two <laughs> percent what I actually capture because I'm only showing you the highlights I do sometimes as a joke you know because I think it's good to see that you know I'm not always getting amazing trail cam footage but I do often put in like really awful stuff or the um, ones where I got it completely out of focus or the positioning wrong and same with photography you know the ones where you just either got nothing because a bird flew past and you got a blank sky or the blurred one or the out of focus one or yeah the thing is people like to see the yeah. the mistakes as well i mean we we actually use we use the trail cams for a while because we noticed kind of paths appearing but then we we randomly noticed now we don't 
and my parents don't have a dog anymore. We grew up with a dog, but we don't have a dog or any pets anymore. And we randomly noticed animal food bowls, they're dog bowls or cat bowls, appearing in the garden. <laughs> and we're just like, what? Where are these coming from? So we set the trail comes out. It was actually a badger. It was like bringing this small dog or cat bowl or whatever into the garden. We're like, where is this coming from? You know, it's um, yeah. And then, then all the holes start appearing, and then we're like, trying right, we need to find out is this the badgers digging up dad's bulbs and stuff like that? And you know, they're great for like investigating what might be causing various things around yeah. the garden as well. And they're such a good thing to use with kids because they love using the technology. And they're very good at the technology. So it's it's really nice to give them a bit of kit that they can really play with and have mm-hmm. a go. And then it isn't just once you've lifted the footage, you can then teach them how to use some of the editing software and then they can make their own little movies about it. Mm-hmm. And then we can share those on the school website. And, you know, there's, there's just so much potential in everything to get them enthused. And I think that's, you know, there's so much stuff where they just have to sit at a desk all day and they're like seven and eight and I think you know yeah there's a time and a place for that but you need to intersperse that with some getting off your backside and yeah see I'm, I'm just I'm just now I just don't think there's ever a time and a place to spend seven hours on your butt in front of a computer a day <laughs> I certainly can't do it I go crazy if I do I, occasionally I do have to work at my office like most of the day and I'm like but I have done a dog walk first thing in the morning or gone for a run yeah <laughs> by the end of the day I need to move or I'm just gonna go crazy so I think you know as a child you definitely need and they they'll often come back and work so much better in the classroom and a lot of staff are doing that a lot more now particularly within their maths work so if they're doing I don't know anything from tables or addition you go out and you do it in a physical way Mm. you know you put those numbers all over the floor and you're calling out someone you have to run and jump onto the right number and then the times when you come back in then you're much more likely to work more effectively when you've already had that little blast outside where you've been physical and I think I think I think that goes for us adults as well to be honest I think you know it's really important to get out you know and and go for a walk and and I mean I know I try and get out every single day Mm. even for if it's just for a quick walk around or you know next week I get to go back to my swimming so you know I get out the house and and everything and you do you, you just feel so much more productive for having that break and that fresh air as well absolutely absolutely so so yeah cameras are like a integral I can't imagine not being able to sit like when I do work at my desk I can see everything that's going on in my garden because I can see all my cameras Mm. (laughs) and if they go down I'm like completely lost because I'm like well I can't see what's on my bird feeder (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I do get it's become such a way of life I, I just can't imagine not having access all the time and the technology is so amazing now and it's moving on so quickly and becoming so much more affordable you know Mm. some of the cameras I've got now I could have only dreamt of even five years ago you know the prices as the technology improves the prices come down because they've become more freely available and some of the you know really good quality stuff you're talking a hundred or so pounds for a really good HD camera cctv based camera and now ones that you can connect to your app you can get a bird box cam and it's live streaming straight to an app on your phone i love it (laughs) (laughs) well there is we have had one question come in all right um, about camera shops and i don't know if you'd be able to help with this one but if anyone can i'm I'm sure you might be able to offer some advice (laughs) and it was from graham wallace who is yeah he's he's a good friend of the show and and listens regularly and 
you know, sends us stuff. But he said, is there any way of preventing condensation on the camera lens of camera traps as the temperature drops in the early hours? Yeah, it is. It's a real issue, particularly at this time of year in like the autumn. I have used like products like there's one called Rainex that's that's sort of designed to stop condensation on visors and motorcycle helmets and all sorts of things it can be used on. And that that can help. Uh, somebody else was the other day was talking about you can get like little tiny heater things as well that you could almost you know the ones that you use as hand warmers mm. you sort of rub together and then they initiate and then you boil them in a saucepan afterwards and it sort of resets it but yeah. you can like use those as well and either have them sitting on the top of the camera just to keep the temperature up a little bit higher or underneath and somebody was trying those but yeah it's it's one of those things you I haven't yet found. Rainex does help a little bit, but certain conditions, it's if it's a dewy morning, it's going to be on your lens, and you can you can guarantee that was the one moment, you know, that hour where you had a huge dollop of condensation was when some really interesting things <laughs> happened. <laughs> I know, I know, I've had moments where it's just been. You look at it, you can see that faint outline of something, and you're stare, you're squinting like nose to your computer computer screen trying to work out what on earth that animal is because yeah. it's just all condensed up and you're like I, I can see an animal yeah. i can't quite work out what it is it's got the four other, legs the um, other thing i've had a bit of um is is like a real like using washing up liquid to clean the lens you know like if sometimes if you're in the bathroom and your your when your mirror's steamed up if you get a little bit of soap on your hands and rub it it will take all the condensation off so I, I've sort of cleaned the lens with washing up liquid and not, you know, wiped it off enough that you're not going to have a big smeary lens. But that can help as well. That little bit of soap base can stop some of that condensation forming as well. So those are the only two things I've, I've had a little bit of help, but nothing in certain conditions. You're not going to be able to stop it. I mean, mean, there's only one thing I could suggest, but it's, yeah, probably not advisable. Well, I guess if your camera, it's not really an issue. But I know, you know, when you when you go scuba diving, you know, when you clean your mask before you get in the water Mm. and you basically you just spit in it and rub it around and wash it out and then it doesn't fog up. I would imagine that's going to be similar to my washing up liquid. Yeah. (laughs) Probably a bit nicer for your camera trap. Yeah. Especially in COVID conditions. Definitely, yes. Please don't go spitting on your camera, Susan. Or anybody else's camera. Or anyone else. Definitely not on anyone else's camera. But I've got some amazing stuff on trial cameras. I've got some cracking footage. When I, I, I guide in Shetland normally in June, and some of my most favourite stuff is on trial cams. I set up some. I go up, tend to be earlier before the, the clients come in. So I set some up the week before, and we leave those the whole week, and then I show the location to the clients during the week and at the end of the week we go and collect the footage and literally look through it together and I show them all the clips but some of the otter stuff we've got up in Shetland is just incredible because they come out in the day and you can find really remote locations and get such beautiful natural daylight behavior in beautiful locations so you not only have a beautiful otter in um in daylight but you have a absolutely epic background as well <laughs> of huge oh. skies and huge expanses of sea so so that happens that is one of my favorite places with the trial cams certainly i just love shetland shetland we've got some cracking stuff up there yeah, <laughs> so i'm hoping try- to go back in june 
I've been trying to get the an otter in Essex on one site, and we had the classic trail cam excitement followed by disappointment where you had 400 bits of footage and it turned out to be a nettle waving in the wind that you didn't notice <laughs> when you set it up yeah, and sadly um i let it left it over christmas holidays there was a flood going on so i couldn't get the camera and why has he left it over christmas boxing day new year came back and someone had nicked it on private land so uh, it's always a danger if you hang it up somewhere yeah. where people can see it but it would have been submerged if i put it any lower so it would have been dead anyway so yeah, yeah. unfortunately one of the, the hazards isn't it with it but it is. I've actually had touch wood. I've had very few stolen, but I'm very good at hiding them. Plus, most of the places I put them on are, like you said, private land or where I'm pretty sure there aren't going to be any other people. You can actually get boxes to basically chain them or securely attach them to yeah. things because it's something we looked at when I was working in Europe on a project over there and we, we were monitoring animal populations using camera traps, but we knew that there were hunters in the area and if they found the cameras, they would destroy them or, or steal them. But and we, it's something that we looked into and you can actually get kind of mm. special cages and that to securely put them up. It makes them more visible but they yeah. actually unless they bring a pair of bolt cutters or something with them they can't Anybody steal who's it determined enough to steal a trial camera or no, they, they it. Just smash it in the case that's i've had people as well do that so mm. because obviously the lens needs to be at clear otherwise it's not going to record so i have known people to do that but on the whole i've had i've had very little issue and actually there's lots of places you can put them where they're really not very obvious or even in even in public places you can find places to hide them and you'd have to be unless they're see the the, the thing is there's there's two types there's a what we call a low glow where the ir the infrared leds glow and that's within the visible range so when it triggers you can see like a dull red glow which is why some of the animals you'll see them turn and look at it because they can see that and then there's a, a, a what we call the um, black or covert IR, and that's a diff, slightly different frequency, and that's not within the visible range. So when that triggers, you can't actually see anything. There's no red glow. But the low glow one has a better reach, so you get a better sort of covering of IR light with the low glow compared to the no glow. <laughs> So you sort of have to weigh the two up. And some animals are more worried than others. And most of them can see it at some point. And I think most cameras do make a tiny noise as well when they trigger, because I've had them look and, and turn and look at the no-glow ones as well. So I do think they can they can hear them sometimes. They're so, they're head sens they're so sensitive. But on the whole, most animals may be a bit spooked when they first see it, like they might jump. But... Next time it comes along that track, they might stop and look. And then the third time, they just walk straight past it. You know, bear in mind, their environment changes all the time. So most animals are quite used to something else being there, particularly if they're around a semi-urban situation. But I, I generally wouldn't use anything other than the no-glow around a more sensitive site. So like a, a halt or a set, unless I felt the, the creatures were already used to trial cams being around. I think the other thing is, though, when you when you first put them out, they've obviously got human scent on them as well. Yeah. And that will wear off after a while. I mean, I, I tend to, when I put them out on mum and dad's, I tend to leave them for a couple of weeks, months, yeah. several months, when I actually remember that I have to put them out and go back and get them. <laughs> but it's, yeah, they, you know, that first couple of days, they're, they're going to have our scent on them as well. And also you do get a bit of reflection sometimes in that eye, where the LEDs are. Some of them just have like a little window 
and mm-hmm. you can get a little bit of reflection off of that sometimes that intrigues them and they'll I mean I've had all animals come right up and I've got otter whiskers all over cameras and badges and another one you come back to your trail cam it's just covered in mud <laughs> yeah no a badger's like had a really old a good old sniff and deer come right up to them and foxes are often because they're so wary they're often spooked at the beginning but once they've seen it a couple of times and it never did anything they're usually absolutely fine so on the whole there's very little reaction to them well it's coming up to the hour now but one thing we do have to ask you about is over the lockdown you issued the wildlife challenges which to much much amusement of many people so would you like to um, explain what they were yeah so when we went into the first lockdown and obviously schools were out as well my time in school was limited so I started to create online activities main well initially for the pupils at school because they're used to working with me and they're used to the kind of crazy stuff I do but then I thought well it's silly me just putting it out just to my school because I'm sure there'll be other families and kids who'd be interested so I set up in fact I set up a whole new website called Alfresco Wild and with the view that I would create some online challenges and activities that families could do together that would be really good fun, but would have an element of learning within there as well. And yeah, I think I, I, I ended up doing about 12 and that quite time consuming <laughs> because I'd have to think of the challenge. Then I'd do a, I didn't want to do it as a paper based activity. So I would record a video of me basically telling you how to do it because certainly with the children they responded much better if they could see me and it was the same you know they were doing a lot of remote learning with their parents but if they had a video and they could watch and I would tell them I was literally teaching them so it was like they were sitting in um, sitting with me outside and I'd explain everything about the activity and what you needed to do and then I'd invariably do it as well and put my examples and then set them the challenge and then there was a space I did a Facebook page and very other places that people could share what they'd done and then I would then share them out as well and I did a few competitions and some companies gave some cool prizes but it was so much fun and one in particular was to find one of your toys particularly if it was an animal so I'd been up in the loft and found a load of jungle old um, you know jungle and farm animals that my kids had had And then I took all these jungle animals out into the garden and basically placed them as if my garden was their habitat. So I've got like a little water hole that birds come and drink and bathe. So I had like an elephant, plastic elephant and a zebra drinking there. And I put the lions in the long grass and I I had a little plastic lemur and I sort of fitted it on a little branch. And then I showed on the video how you could take pictures or videos at really interesting angles and then put a few apps out that you could put music to it. So encourage people to try and do a little documentary of the animals out in their garden using their toys and oh my goodness I had some such cool ones come through in fact Vic you did one as well didn't you I did I I, I found some frogs naturally being me um so yeah I had I, I spent a wonderful afternoon outside positioning all these frogs on the edge of my pond and I think I used a praying mantis and a couple of other invertebrates as well and it was so much fun because it it was just like, you know what, I've, I've got to do this because it's going to be hilarious. And I, yeah, I did all mine with my phone. Yeah. You know, and it's just, I think a lot of people, actually, you know, a lot of adults certainly got out there <laughs> and got involved. And they and did it them. like they, they said in, um, I, th- I remember one mum saying, my kid had actually lost interest, but I carried on because yeah. I had so much fun. <laughs> there were some really, 
lovely, like really imaginative. They've got like the Duplo. One of them got like a Duplo safari kit. So it was like a little Duplo characters in, in some kind of safari truck. And they like did them all the way through the garden. And then another one had like some pigs and they'd made like a little mud hole in the garden where they'd actually yeah. mixed water and mud and mixed it all up and made like a little wallow. So a lot of those are shared on my website. They were so, so good. And I, and I, I definitely I definitely feel if, if we have snow, there's got to be a winter one coming up. Yeah, yeah. I, I must admit, I haven't I haven't added any recently since we all went back to school and everything sort of went back to some semblance of order and normality in terms of education but I I will I will do some more because they were really well received both at school I had a lot obviously a lot of uptake from from my kids but from all over the country people got on board and like oh I want to try that and I was like you don't have to be a kid to do these you can just do it you don't even have to have kids if you think it looks like fun (laughs) go out do it And it is. And honestly, I mean, I had so much fun doing it. And I said, I just use my phone because of not using, you know, my proper gear right now anyway. Yeah. And most children have got access if they haven't got a phone themselves. They've got their parents. And actually filming with my phone is a darn sight easier than with my camera. And um, got some really cool little. So, yeah, go on and have a look at that one. The other one that was really cool was making bird feeders out of Lego or toys. And that was a competition, actually. I had some lovely prizes. But I'd done a series of, again, finding funny old toys. So I've got like Duplo canoe. So a little Duplo character each end of the canoe and the food in the middle. And then my Robin just coming and landing and eating out of a Duplo canoe. We had kids making amazing Lego constructions and then filming the birds that came to them. And it was it was just fun. And kids were building stuff and then putting it in their garden and then watching the birds that visited. Result, you know, suddenly you've got them engaged. Yeah. Um, and I had like, you know, like superhero characters holding a fat ball. <laughs> <laughs> I think I had a Lego Bionicle at one point holding a holding some kind of bird product and the birds coming and eating from a Lego Bionicle. But it was it was just really good fun. And and to me, anything that gets kids engaged with being outside in the natural world, then I'm up for that. <laughs> and I'd actually say the same for adults, to be honest. Neil, the challenge is on. <laughs> You've got to come up with something. <laughs> think. Uh, yeah but it was I mean I said I I took part and it was really good fun and you know they're not just for kids let's be honest you could have just as much fun as an adult doing it and often it was people who were having a go who who really didn't had never really fed the birds before or done anything like that before and suddenly they were making a little lego bird feeder putting it out and then getting really excited when a robin came down and and fed from it because the robin didn't know you've made it from lego no <laughs> and it's like all the other you know i do a lot of other crazy crazy projects in like my mammal box i dress that like a little sitting room or stuff like that mainly because it attracts a different audience and yeah i've got something coming on a big show just before christmas but i can't say anything yeah. yet <laughs> we, when when it's launched we will share it <laughs> yes that's another one of my crazy crazy type projects but I think it will it will raise a smile put it that way <laughs> and I think that's what we all need right now to be honest I mean I think we could probably talk to you about this for hours but 
<laughs> yeah, I do do lots of, and you know, I do get criticism, but a very small amount, if I'm honest. You know, there's always people who go, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. You're taking you know, advantage of a vole when he comes and sits on a sitting on a little mini one twelfth doll's house chair to eat his peanut instead of sitting in the. I don't know, out in your garden. But to be honest, the vole has no idea he's sitting on a 112th Dolls House furniture chair. No. <laughs> if it attracts some people who maybe have not even heard of a vole and now they know about voles, then my job is done. Yeah. <laughs> and I enjoy it and I know other people enjoy it. And I think, you know, that social media is is amazing. And, and you know, I've become known for my work through mainly Twitter. And, and I couldn't have done what I've done and shared it in the way or met all the amazing people who've helped me along the way if it wasn't for social media and you do have to be mindful that there will be people who are not so keen on what you do but I always say well look I'm enjoying it other people are enjoying it I'm not causing any harm and if you don't like it you know that unfollow button you can always click on that yeah <laughs> You know, and I really try not to get upset. And really everything you'll notice, certainly on Twitter, I very rarely put anything negative. But I'm I'm not really a very negative person, to be honest. Um, this is this is what I'm like. Yeah. So if you follow me on Twitter yet and then you meet me, you're not gonna be surprised. <laughs> I'd love to say I never put anything negative on Twitter, but that'd be a complete lie. <laughs> no, it's it's funny about the negative stuff. I I am still quite surprised I don't get more criticism for photographing animals in aquariums i've only ever had two or three and two of those were literally straight after let's just say i butted heads with a certain animal rights organization so (laughs) i think it was just people trading off from that i could probably count considering how many years i've spent i I could probably count on one hand the number and if, if people ever do put anything negative oh my goodness my twitter supporters go crazy so they usually um, back me up and then that person disappears fairly quickly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we could, as Vic said, we could probably talk to you for hours, but I think that's probably a good place to wrap up for now. I think we're going to have to have you on again, Kate. Definitely. <laughs> so many more things to discuss. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But it has been absolutely fantastic to to get you on and chat. About yeah. Yeah. You're, You're one of the original to guests to have on, weren't wasn't you, Vic? So, uh, yeah. You've only just got round to it after a year. <laughs> yeah it was just like we've got to get kate on we've got to get kate on <laughs> yeah, yeah I've, I've, really to talk yeah, i yeah. think i suggested it didn't i i knew when uh i know her <laughs> but, yeah. all right okay then <laughs> great minds and all that excellent yeah i think that's it from us the apart from to mention the live show again that, but keep your eye on social media so kate where can people find you on social medias and websites and stuff okay so if you well if you just google wildlife kate you'll probably find the lot but my yeah my website is wildlifekate.co.uk and on twitter i'm kate mccrae m-a-c-r-a-e and those are my main platform we'll share those as well yeah. so that when it goes out people can if you're listening through apple or another thing if you want to find us on social media twitter is uk wildlife pod facebook is uk wildlife podcast if you just search for that it comes up and Instagram is all one word, UK Wildlife Podcast. And that's how you and can find us. Do you remember if you want to ask any questions or you know, if you've got anything through social media, particularly on Twitter and Instagram, please use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast because it just makes it a little bit easier for us to find kind of questions and comments. 
yeah, we want to start a your sightings little section, but it's quite hard to track everything down using the at UK Wildlife Pod bit because obviously everything else gets mixed in with it. So like retweets and stuff. So yeah, so, if you yeah. use the hashtag, it'll be a lot easier and we can start doing that a bit more. Yeah, please do and send us your sightings so we can do a listeners sighting section. And maybe even share episode. some photos on the live show. So, right. Well, that's it from us. Thanks again, Kate. Okay, pleasure. Thank you very much. And we'll see you all next time. Yep. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.